Have you ever felt it? That excitement, that hum, that reaches into the very base of your stomach and makes your whole body feel alive? Well, your life can feel like that. Each week, I'll be sharing ways your personal wellness journey can lead you to a life that literally makes you hum. We'll be diving into all things nutrition, mindset, connection, spirituality and relationships to encourage you to be courageous and brave with your life and most importantly, unashamedly you. Together, let's find your hum. Hey, I'm Kirsty, your host, and this is episode four of Find Your Hum. This week, both here in the UK and over in Australia, we have seen some significant lifting of lockdown restrictions. Now, with that also does come the increased risk of the infection rate spiking again. This in itself can cause some fear and a feeling of not wanting to venture back out into the real world. Now, for some, it has been a really lovely and nurturing time. However, if you have that feeling of uncertainty, please head back to last week's episode, Managing Stress in Uncertain Times, where I had a really good chat with Anthony Harcher, and we discussed some super practical ways to help you manage these feelings. And remember, if you're loving the episodes, make sure you hit subscribe and tell anyone else that you know who might be interested. Now this week, I wanted to give you a little more information around the current research into COVID-19 treatment and prevention. And of course, there will be some practical takeaways for you to implement. And please remember, the information that I give you here on this podcast is generalized and should never be taken over actual medical advice. Now, this isn't going to be a general immune boosting episode. I did do a really good blog on that a couple of months back and I will link it in the show notes. So you can either click on that or head over to thenourishingway.com.au and just search immune and it will pop up. And considering the current pandemic of COVID-19 where there are no effective preventative or curative medicine available, a healthy immune system is probably the most important weapon against this viral infection. So I really encourage you to check it out. Now, at the time of recording this, there are no suitable vaccines or antivirals available for COVID-19. So what I will be looking at is the research into other possible ways that we can reduce the likelihood of contracting COVID-19, decrease the severity of it, and also shorten the infection time. COVID-19 pneumonia is complex. We definitely know that. It also has a high morbidity and mortality rate. It causes severe lung damage that results in acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, which is life-threatening. This syndrome prevents the oxygen that we need to live to enter into our lungs, and it is believed that this pulmonary failure is the principal cause of COVID-19 effect on humans. But lung inflammation injury are considerably reduced by the administration of antioxidants, which I will get to the significance of shortly. All coronaviruses increase oxidative stress. Now we hear about oxidative stress, or usually the solution to oxidative stress, antioxidants, quite a bit. However, I do find a lot of people don't actually understand what's happening here. So let me digress just for a moment with one of my analogies to help you understand. Now, I want you to imagine a fence post that has been left in a field. Now, over time, you would know this becomes rusty. It oxidates. And this is what is happening to our cells. They are, in essence, rusting. 
So the oxidative stress and subsequent cytokine storm caused by the coronavirus causes our cells to malfunction and ultimately this can result in organ failure. The viral infection also generates a storm of cytokines that reacts with the cells that line the inside of our lungs. This causes neutrophil infiltration and enhances oxidative stress, which damages the function of the lung barrier. Now, neutrophils are a super important part of our immune system. They make up between oh, 55 to 70% of our white blood cells. And they produce chemicals that fight off anything that shouldn't be in our systems. And they also amplify inflammation produced by other cells. Now, inflammation is beneficial. It causes heat. And when viruses heat up, they are more likely to die. Where the problem lies in what is known as phagocytosis. This is where neutrophils essentially eat the bacteria or virus that is meant to be in our system. Again, sounds great, I know, and we definitely need it. However, this phagocytosis produces a lot of reactive oxygen species, and this adds to the oxidative stress that's already present. Given that coronaviruses literally create a storm of cytokines that call in the neutrophils, there is the possibility of quite a lot of damage to be done with the uncontrolled inflammation and oxidative injury to our cells. This is seen in an increase of C-reactive protein among COVID-19 patients. This C-reactive protein is an indicator of inflammation and oxidative stress. Considering the oxidative stress, a large dose of vitamin C should play a key role in the management of COVID-19. Now, vitamin C, or ascorbic acid as it's also known, is a key component of the antioxidant system of our cells and tissues. This is what keeps our cells from getting rusty. It scavenges oxygen-free radicals and restores other antioxidants into our cells. And remember back to the beginning when I said that lung inflammation and injury are considerably reduced by the administration of antioxidants? Vitamin C will help here too. And the research that I am most excited about is intravenous vitamin C or IV vitamin C. This is helping to develop a stronger immune system response, reduce the cytokine storm and increase antiviral activities. The reduction of the cytokine storm in the late stages of the COVID-19 infection is the most significant application of IV vitamin C. Now, the most important factor here is the intravenous part. Our absorption of vitamin C through our small intestines and into our blood actually reaches a peak point and then starts to decline when we take vitamin C orally. So taking high doses of oral supplementation really is not effective because we don't actually absorb it. In fact, what it does do is usually cause diarrhea. So the amounts required to flood our body could just not be tolerated if we were taking it orally. This absorption problem is bypassed when the vitamin C is administered straight into the blood system, hence the use of IV vitamin C. You can really give high doses and you don't have to worry about it passing straight through the digestive system and out our bottoms. So back to the wonders of this IV vitamin C. There have been successful trials where large doses of vitamin C have been administered and shown successful results in both viral acute respiratory distress syndrome and influenza. 
Whilst these have only been individual and small trials, the fact still remains that using IV vitamin C in treating influenza and viral acute respiratory distress syndrome has shown success with full improvement of the lungs, shorter oxygen requirements, and a reduced length of time in ICU. I mean, talk about ticking all the boxes. In another study, it was found that a high dose of vitamin C of 17 grams a day in 47 sepsis ICU cases resulted in a major reduction in death and shortened the ICU stay by up to 44%. I mean, considering that we have the shortage or the problem of potential shortage of ICU beds, I really don't understand why we are not doing this. And then let's also talk about the viral load. That is sort of how much the burden the virus is on our body. On top of helping the oxidative stress caused by the coronavirus, vitamin C is a well-known antiviral. That is, it helps our body to be able to fight off viruses. In fact, the antiviral activities of ascorbic acid or vitamin C have been known for over 80 years when scientists were doing work on poliomyelitis. This reduced the mortality rates in both children and adults with this condition. So how can it do it? It's because ascorbic acid can modulate or improve the response and function of the immune system. It's found in many of our white blood cells and it helps kill off viruses. And even though this can have that oxidative effect on the body that I spoke about before, when vitamin C levels in the body are high, we have enough to respond to this oxidative stress, meaning our cells won't get rusty. So why are we not doing this? Now, there has been some contention regarding the use of high-dose IV vitamin C and those with pre-existing renal conditions and hemochromatosis. That's where iron levels are high. And it is advised not to have this treatment because it could accelerate renal failure and vitamin C is known to aid the absorption of iron, which we don't want to do in hemochromatosis. But outside of these conditions, it is found to be safe for the majority of people and most importantly, effective. Yet there are those in the medical world that are blocking it. Again, I'm never on here to bash the medical system. In cases of severe COVID-19, we really need them. But what gets me really riled up is why do they never consider non-medical treatment until it has been tested to the extreme? Same applies to the viral application. Despite vitamin C's beneficial effects in viral infections. It is not used because no solid clinical data exists. Now, I really do understand the importance of trials and tests. My very logical Virgo brain likes to know how things work. I also have a one in my human design profile, which means I will investigate the shit out of something because I want to know how it works. However, to dismiss the findings of the trials that have already been conducted that IV vitamin C has been effective since the 70s due to the fact there was no controls in those studies absolutely baffles me. These patients in the trial did not have adverse reactions and improvements in their condition were no less clinically relevant just because there wasn't a control group. The particular study I'm referring to was a trial done with cancer patients, but the significance here is that there were high doses administered and no adverse effects. I don't understand why we are not using IV vitamin C. 
even if it only helps a small percentage of people with COVID, it has to be better than the current 0% it's helping because our medical systems won't use it. In the US, naturopathic doctors are treating COVID cases with high-dose IV vitamin C and getting fantastic results. People who were literally so weak and couldn't lift a glass of water are improving without the nasty side effects of lung damage. Considering the current situation of not having an effective antiviral or vaccine, it seems completely ludicrous to me that this is not even being considered on a much wider scale. Why aren't our Western medical systems looking to try this? With research already carried out where IV vitamin C is being used for cancer treatment, we know it can be safe and effective. I mean, even if it helps 50%, hey, 10% of patients with severe COVID symptoms get better, doesn't that warrant us giving it a try? Now, this is where I might get a little controversial, but I'm pretty sure the reason that it's not being used or trialed is that big pharma the drug companies that produce vaccines and antivirals can't patent or license vitamin C. There really is no money to be made in vitamin C on a grand scale. And it makes me so damn furious to think that money still comes before people's lives. I'm sure in using licensed drugs provided by the big drug companies, there is some financial gain that our governments receive, which in part goes towards providing services like our health service. And yes, we definitely need that. But when it comes to facing something like a pandemic, surely the impact on our lives and heck, even the world economy would make those people who make these decisions at least want to give it a try. Now, for those of you who want to just make sure they've got a good solid base of vitamin C and don't have the underlying renal conditions or hemochromatosis, you could take around 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams a day as this is pretty safe if you don't think you're getting enough from your food sources. But remember to split the dose. You don't want to take more than 1,000 milligrams at a time to make sure that you're maximizing your absorption. Now, being water-soluble, the chances are of you having too much at this dose is lowered, but you really shouldn't be taking it unless you need it. And remember, food is always the best place to start. Keep in mind, if you are thinking about vitamin C from food, oranges aren't the highest source of vitamin C. Red capsicum actually is. And I've included a list of other high vitamin C foods in the article I mentioned earlier. So get into the show notes or over on the website and have a look at that article. Now let's talk about a few other nutrients that have shown to help the immune system. I know I said this wasn't a general immune episode and it's not. I'm going to be touching on particular vitamins and minerals that have been shown to help viral infections of the lungs. Now vitamin D plays a very vital role in both sides of our immune system, the adaptive and the innate. In a nutshell, our adaptive immune system response takes days or even weeks to kick in. It's the part of our immune response that will produce antibodies to make sure we have better defenses next time a virus arrives. The innate immune response is that instant response where our white blood cells, like our neutrophils, mount an attack. Vitamin D is also key in the immune system being able to stop the inflammatory response once the attack is over. 
Now, there is a link between vitamin D deficiency and the increased chances of being infected by an acute viral respiratory infection. Like with many of these trials, there is always a question over the initial levels of the vitamin D that the person had to start with, dosages and outcomes. However, the trend that is clearly seen is that if you have a deficiency of vitamin D, you are more likely to contract both upper and lower respiratory infections. And that through supplementation, the incidence of occurrence of these infections is reduced. Now, the goal should be to raise your vitamin D concentrations to above 100 to 150 nanomoles per litre. This is of particular importance because the Northern Hemisphere has just come out of winter and the Southern Hemisphere is going into winter. Now, I wouldn't normally suggest supplementation of a fat-soluble vitamin without seeing professional first, but short-term vitamin D supplementation of between 1,000 and 3,000 international units daily may not be harmful. This is a fat-soluble vitamin though, so your body will store it. Hence the emphasis on short term. Vitamin D status should always be tested before remaining on it for too long. Vitamin A also has many roles in our body and one of the importance here is in protecting the mucosal integrity in our body. Mucosal services in our body provide a physical barrier against pathogens that get into our body. And it exists basically throughout our whole body. But of course here we're talking about our respiratory system. And we have an antibody that lives in this mucosa called immunoglobulin A, or IgA, which basic broad function is neutralizing influenza viruses in our lungs. Now, this vitamin should always be supplemented with proper consultation. So if you are aware of this being a problem for you or you think it might be a problem for you, please seek out a practitioner who can help you. The last one is zinc. Zinc helps maintain our immune function. And again, showing that a deficiency can result in an elevated risk of acquiring viral infections. In a trial on children with pneumonia, zinc supplementation saw statistically significant clinical improvement in the duration of the illness, their respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation. It also helped the response to the cytokine storm. Again, this is a supplement that you should see a practitioner before taking. Now I'm going to switch gears a little now and talk about the COVID diabetes link as I think this is really interesting and also an important one to talk about. Now before I head down the diabetes path, I want to start by saying that the papers reference uncontrolled diabetes and they don't distinguish between type 1 and type 2, so we will just lump those in together. Now in people with diabetes, their first line of defense is compromised. Diabetes, remember, in its uncontrolled state is pro-inflammatory. Levels of the cytokine interleukin-6, that C-reactive protein I spoke about before, that marker of inflammation and ferritin are all higher in patients with diabetes than those without diabetes, which suggests that those with diabetes are more susceptible to an inflammatory cytokine storm, which eventually will lead to the acute respiratory distress syndrome, shock, and the rapid deterioration that we often see with COVID-19. If you have diabetes, it can also lead to a reduced production of a converting enzyme known as angiotensin converting enzyme, or ACE2, which is found in the lungs, the kidneys, and the lining of our veins. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the details of what this actually does in the body, but its role in the lungs contributes to reducing inflammation and helps with antioxidant activity. It is known to be protective against influenza. And again, I know it's not COVID, but it is a very similar style of disease. And this could explain as to why those with diabetes have an increased incidence of severe lung injury and the acute respiratory distress syndrome when they contract COVID-19. They just don't have enough of this enzyme to help their body fight it. Coupled with that is it is often the compounding role of drugs that diabetic people take to protect their urinary system. This can actually increase the expression of ACE2 which I know sounds great because of what I've just said, but the COVID virus actually uses ACE2 as a mean to enter the pneumocytes, which allow increased entry of the virus into our lungs and encourages the virus to replicate. Now, once the virus is in there, ACE2 is actually then down-regulated and stops it from protecting it against the lung disease. So you're getting a definite double whammy here. There's also an interesting two-way relationship with COVID and diabetes. Not only does having diabetes leave people more compromised to getting COVID, COVID can actually worsen diabetes through beta cell damage in the pancreas. This is particularly important for those with type 2 diabetes who still have a functioning pancreas. This is because ACE2 can also be found in the pancreas. And also, the cytokine storm produced by COVID can further increase insulin resistance. So it's super important to ensure good glycemic control. And this really does go for everyone. You don't need to be a diabetic to have poor glycemic control. But for diabetics in particular, lockdown would have altered routine in-clinic visits, limited their physical activity, altered their food habits, and potentially adversely affected their psychological health. Diabetics need to be extra cautious and ensure strict social distancing, proper hand hygiene and good glycemic control amid the ongoing pandemic. And just to finish up, I'm going to give you a few general recommendations for maintaining your health. Now, infections of any kind increase your body's demand for nutrients. It is well recognized that nutrition is a crucial factor in keeping our immune system strong and responsive. Even borderline deficiencies in one micronutrient may impair your body's immune response. So to keep up in your nutritional status, eat your veggies. I know I say it all the time, but it's so important. Hit at least that five a day and go for color, go for variety, pick something new all the time. Follow a balanced diet. Look at every time you eat, you make your plate up with two big cups of veggies, one serve of protein, and two serves of healthy fats to help keep that inflammation down. Eating a diet as close to what nature provides will help lower the glycemic load. It'll increase your blood glucose control and enhance your immune functions. And also, if you're overweight, losing just 5% of your body weight over a 12-week period has been shown to improve your immune function. And also think about your digestion for nutrient status. Are you able to absorb all the great food that you're putting into your body? If not, and you think your gut health might be a problem, now is a great time to look at strengthening this area. 
Take precautions if you think you might be malnourished to any of those key nutrients I spoke about, so vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin A, or zinc. And also, if you have underlying conditions that may put you at higher risk for deficiencies in these areas, you may need supplementation. So seek out help to restore your nutrients. And of course, most importantly, remember to social distance, don't touch your face, and wash your hands thoroughly. Cheers for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Hum. Don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and tell your mates about it.